Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen. Would you guys give it up for our worship team? You! All right. Well, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to uh, Young Adults. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we have been uh, studying the book of Romans for more than a year. Um, and today, we're actually not going to be jumping back in the book of Romans, and here's why. Um, as I got here at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning to start studying and all that, um, I realized that the verses 14 through 21, which is where we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, are really tethered to uh, the preceding verses, 21 and on, in the chapter 16. And uh, next week, we're doing Friendsgiving, which I heard Carly and Alexa talk about. Friendsgiving is awesome. So we don't have any couches, any tables in here. We bring in all the wooden tables from outside, and uh, it's literally just tons of food. We get all the Chick-fil-A, and we're getting Chick-fil-A on Sunday, which is a miracle. Um, and so it's going to be fun. But you guys have to sign up to bring food. And so where is Christina? Christina, Christina, Christina? Where, where? Cool. Um, do they have papers that they can sign up for food? Cool. After service, she's going to be hounding you guys to bring desserts and stuff like that. We're bringing all the main dishes. You're welcome to bring uh, side dishes and a bunch of other stuff like that. Any questions on that real quick? The week after that, Rahelio, where's Rahelio at? I saw him earlier. He's going to be speaking. Super amped about that. And so um, I figured like if I was going to hop into Romans today, it'd be so detached from uh, the next handful of weeks. So we're going to do Romans after all that. All right. So today we're doing a standalone. But before we hop into where I want to go today, I'm going to give you guys an opening question. I just want you guys to turn and discuss. Here's the question, all right? Have you ever had a difficulty talking about faith with someone before, right? So it was that coffee, it's a family member, it's a friend. You're trying to tell them about who Jesus is, about your life transformation that's happened, uh, or something along those lines, and uh, it's not going the way in which you wanted it to, for whatever reason. Um, they're tired, they're not listening, they're antagonistic, whatever it may be, all right? So I'm gonna give you guys a minute, turn to discuss with some folks around you. Ready, set, go. So for me, I remember I was 18. I recently had just become a Christian, gave my life to Jesus in this room, got baptized in a jacuzzi right there, long story. But um, I remember being amped about my, my faith, right? And I remember telling a family member that I recently became a Christian. I gave my life over to Jesus. And I knew what their worldview and ide- ideological preferences were before I shared this you know, life transformation with them. And uh, I, I knew they were going to be, I don't know, antagonistic, but I, had, I didn't anticipate such a strong negative reaction. The first thing that was out of their mouth was that I believed in a myth that was destroying the world um, and intellectualism as a whole. And to be honest, um, I, uh, I didn't really have intellectual reasons back when I was 18 for following Christ. I couldn't give you the co- you know, cosmological arguments, teleological arguments, and moral arguments. I couldn't give you any of these arguments that now, like I've studied through philosophy or science or apologetics, and, and, and that kind of bring an intellectual basis under and around the Christian worldview. And so they asked me a lot of really kind of difficult questions. And I, at the time, I, like I said, I really had more experiential reasons than philosophical or theological reasons for camping my hope on Jesus Christ. And so this, this person, she started to ask me some really challenging questions. And they were really way out of my league, to be honest with you. And um, I guess more challenging the questions were, I guess, the, were the attitude and spirit in which she challenged my worldview. I just felt at the end of our conversation belittled and weak by this family member. And I was in this weird place, and you may have been there before, where I knew what I believed because I saw the power of how God has changed my heart, how he's transformed me and made me new. But I couldn't intellectually explain in my head all that God had done. 
nor give really justification for my beliefs logically than just the evidence of my personal life change. And to be honest with you, for years I struggled with that. It made me feel really insecure in my faith journey that I couldn't intellectually back up my faith. But to be honest with you, I, it shouldn't have. It shouldn't have belittled me in any sense of the way. In the book of First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope in which you have. And the answer for the hope in which you have is just your personal story. How has Jesus interrupted your life? How has, he, has, how has he worked for good in your life, changed you, given you hope, a peace, a joy that surpasses understanding? How has he interrupted and changed the direction and course of your life? It isn't explain to me all these big answers to all these different questions and things like that. I see, I'm willing to bet, right, that, that we've all been in a similar situation before when having a faith-based conversation or at least hoping to have a faith-based conversation with somebody, right? You may have confidence in the truth of the Bible and the power of the gospel as you've seen it evident in your own life, but yet you still struggle to have faith-based conversations with friends and family members because maybe of all the what-ifs, right? What if I don't have all the answers? What if I make Scripture look outdated and I just make Scripture look plain dumb? And so in situations like this, we can find ourselves maybe a little bit ashamed. No, not of the gospel, but maybe our ability to defend it. But let me give you some good news tonight that'll set us up for where we're headed. Truth does not depend upon your ability to defend it. Truth does not depend upon your ability to defend it, nor has God ever asked that his followers, i.e. you and me if you are a follower of Jesus, to have an exhaustive knowledge really of all things. And so today I just want to journey with you in one of my favorite stories told by Jesus that takes, I think, many of the burdens that we place on ourselves off of ourselves and that we place them appropriately upon, the, uh, upon Jesus and not ourselves. And when it comes to having a real authentic joy and passion and unguardedness when sharing our faith with other people. And so today I just want to discover maybe two learnings, two, yeah, yeah, I want to, two observations as we glean um, from Jesus as we unpack a story that he shares two things we're going to talk about. Number one is the character of God. I think we learn a lot about the character of who the God that we say we worship in the pages of scripture that we're going to journey through in a moment. And number two, the commissioning by God. Let's start with the first, the character of God. I'll say it this way. It's important that you see God rightly so that you will see yourself correctly and inevitably have a right relationship with him. I heard the silly story of a woman um, who went to the optometrist and bought a pair of prescription eyeglasses for her husband who was elderly. And three days later, she ended up returning to, the pair, to, returning to the doctors to return the pair of eyeglasses. And the doctor said, what's the problem? And she blurted out really quickly, like a smart aleck. And she said, my husband still isn't seeing things my way. I need some new glasses, right? As I think about that, the way the, our vision is of utmost importance in the way in we, we interact and engage with God, right? I'll say it this way. How you see God is of utmost importance in how you relate to him. If you have a faulty vision of him, you will inevitably have a broken relationship with him. If you have a faulty vision of God, you don't know him for who he really is, you will inevitably have a broken relationship with him. Now, when you pause and just think of this for a moment, Jesus' life worked hard to correct our vision of who God was, right? Every parable that he told, every lesson that he gave was designed to teach us what the heart of God was like, who he loved, what brought joy to his heart. It, 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 every story, every lesson, every word from Jesus' mouth was designed to teach us who God is and what he's like. And you know, over the years, one of the things that most was fascinating to me about learning about who Jesus is and, and his interests was that he always gravitated towards people who were not religious during his lifetime, which is odd because he was a religious leader. And so you have this religious leader who didn't spend much time focusing on religious people, and there's a paradox there. In fact, to go even further, it seems that the people who were most uncomfortable with the temple, the church, in Jesus' day... Because, I don't know, maybe they felt judged or they felt ostracized or um, uh, uh, downtrodden or whatever it was, were most comfortable around Jesus. And the people who were the most comfortable at the temple, i.e. the church, 
felt most uncomfortable around Jesus, which is fascinating. Another way of saying this, if you lean in with me, is this. The people who felt most comfortable around Jesus, most cared for around Jesus, were actually the unchurched. This is wild. Like, this is different than every other religious figure in human history. Because you would think that Jesus, i.e. God and Abad, and a religious leader, a rabbi, they wouldn't be in the same people category of people that weren't religious, right? Maybe they didn't use the same language, didn't have the same interests and hobbies, and, and didn't have the same friend group, and did, didn't do the same stuff with their free time, and definitely didn't associate with the same people. But to dig a little deeper, you're going to find that the people who were unchurched, that never walked through the doors of a church or a temple, felt comfortable around Jesus because they knew that this Jewish rabbi that lived 200 decades ago authentically loved these people, cared for these people, and so they followed him. Let's learn this together as you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 gives us a little bit of insight into, into the character of God and the commissioning by God. And, and uh, we're going to find in, in Luke chapter 15, there, there are three things that are lost, right? And then eventually, inevitably get found in the story. There's a sheep, there's a coin, and there's a son. Tonight, we don't have time to go to all three. That would be a three-hour sermon. Um, but we are going to talk about the first um, act, I guess we'd say, in this parable. Now, for my friends here really quick, they didn't grow up in church uh, welcome. I'll be your tour guide for a moment. But I want to tell you what a parable is. A parable is just simply a fictitious story told by Jesus designed to communicate truth. It could be truth about heaven or hell, sin or salvation, about we're going to find today the character of God himself. But I'll make it simple. For those of you guys just to memorize this, a parable is an earthly story designed to communicate heavenly truth. A parable is an earthly story that Jesus would conjure up looking at an audience like this. He would interact with the people that were in the audience to know a little of their backgrounds and stories. And yes, there was probably some supernatural insights that were implanted in that moment by the Spirit that would give him context to help create stories that met people where they were at to take them to where God wanted them to go. And so a parable is an earthly story designed to communicate a heavenly truth or a spiritual truth. So go with me to Luke chapter, Luke, Luke chapter 15, verses uh, one. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. There's actually a critique you'll see in a moment. But what Luke is doing in this moment is he's writing the cultural labels of the people that were, let's say, uh, offensive to the religious ideologies and preferences of that day. So he inserts the cultural labels that were around tax collectors. You may not know anything about tax collectors other than if you pay taxes, you know a little about the IRS, and these people were worse than the IRS. So these people were bad guys. They were professional extortionists and thieves. Um, they, they were despised, and that's because they were basically ripping off their own people. Let me give you some context in what tax collectors, how they operated in antiquity. The way it worked is the foreign government at this time was the Romans. They came in, and they took over and imposed high taxes upon the Israelites, or the Jewish people, right? And the way that this worked was they would eventually hire other Jews to go and now tax the other Jews to give to the, the Roman government the tax money. But the way it would work is a lot of these Jews would say that you owed 20% in taxes when you actually only own 10%. So they would charge you an extra 10% and pocket it. And so tax collectors, like Matthew was a tax collector, the follower of Jesus, um, weren't really liked because they were seen as thieves, extortionists, things along these lines. So you had the tax collectors. They were the ISIS of the ancient world. Hamas, right? Bad, whatever. And then the other side, you have, uh, you have sinners, uh, just regular good old sinners, right? You know, the people who get drunk, watch porn, uh, don't say thank you after you open a door for them, uh, you know, just the good old regular, you know, sinners, right? And so this is the duality of the group in which Jesus is talking to. Go with me to Luke chapter 15 too. It says this, but the Pharisees, they were the top tier, the, the I don't have this in Protestant, uh, in a Protestant faith, but I guess in Catholicism, you would have people that like are the Pope and you have his bishops and, and the cardinals and, and, and all of that, right? Top tier of the Jewish society. And if we were all Catholic, these would be people that we'd be impressed by. But because we're not, I'm not impressed with them. So it says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So there's a critique here. What's the critique? 
if you listen closely, it's that Jesus, this religious holy man, who will inevitably claim to be God, is communing with people who are nothing like him, interfacing with people who are nothing like him, spends, times with, spends time with the tax collectors, has a heart for ISIS. This is perplexing to the religious people of, of Jesus' time. And Jesus, they would say, look, Jesus, we don't, we don't get it. Like, we understand who you claim to be. You came, claim to be a religious leader, but you never invite us over to the party. You're spending all of your time with these unreligious people who I would be uncomfortable sitting next to in church or a temple. In fact, we heard this one time, right, that you turned water into wine. That seems like a party that we should have been invited to, but you didn't. Why are you spending all of your time with the unchurched, the lost, the unclean, just plain bad people who look nothing like you, act nothing like you? Why? See, Jesus knew that the tax collectors, the sinners, and yeah, even the religious people of Jesus' day had the wrong view of the way that God the Father sees them. See, they saw people in Jesus' day as good people and bad people. They saw those as welcomed by God because they had high church attendance, or they knew the Bible words, and those that were unshunned by God. They saw those loved by God and those that were hated by God. And the problem, see, the problem was this became the primary way that people were viewing other people, categorizing other people. And in no way were these adjectives reflective of the way God the Father interacted. God the Father was viewing these human beings. See, Jesus decides he's going to use this occasion as an opportunity to teach them how their heavenly Father views them. So all this sets the scene for Jesus' teaching. And like I said, he tells stories of lost things to help us see how God sees, how God loves, how God interacts with lost people. Verse 3 says this, then Jesus told them a parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So interesting enough, right? I don't know if it's highlighted up there, it's not, but uh, one of the most interesting words here that immediately sticks out to me is the first kind of descriptive word, and the word is lost. And to be honest with you, as we read the parable, the lost actually probably would give us enough context that you wouldn't even need the word sheep that we find a little bit later, but rather the word sheep, the Jewish motif, the theme of sheep is actually imperative to the unlocking of what the parable is actually about because it's pivotal in understanding the human condition. Now, I want you to remember really quick that when, uh, when Jesus goes off in these long stories um, that we call parables, that you got to ask yourself two questions. So whenever you're in your Bible and you're going through uh, any parable, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, where we find our parables, you got you to pause, you got to stop every time you enter into a parable, and there are two primary questions that you must ask yourself. Number one, who is God in the story? We need to appropriately place who he is so we can identify, number two, who am I in the story? Every parable that Jesus ever told has him in it and has you in it. It's your job and my job as the readers with good hermeneutical skills to find out who is God and who am I in the story. Bad news, we are the sheep in the story we're about to go in. And when our maker, and this is important, when our maker compares us to something else that he has made, we should pay close attention. So some facts about sheep that you may not know. I like talking about sheep a lot, by the way. Um, (laughs) Number one, you need to know this is not a compliment. This is like the bummerest thing he could have ever compared you to. Of all domesticated animals, sheep are by far the most pathetic. I'll give you three things. Number one, they are dumb. They are literally known to walk off cliffs. 
That's a special type of dumb, reserved for the top tier dumb dumbs, right? That's special dumb. Like, I don't know any other type of animal just walks off cliffs, right? Number two, they're directionless, right? They get lost daily, wander into places they shouldn't be, straying away. They have literally no sense of geographical location. You could put one down right here and just continue to go away from the shepherd and the flock and the shepherd that loves and cares for them, right? They are directionless. Number, t- number three, they're defenseless. They have no teeth, no claws, no agility. They're not quick. They can't jump high, right? They can't dunk. They can't do any of this type of stuff, right? And you compound all of that. They're fat and they're slow and it's fluffy, right? If you don't believe me, imagine this. Tomorrow morning, you, get, you we wake up to an alert on your phone. And the alert, uh, it says that um, there is a, a herd of sheep roaming around your neighborhood. Now, you, like me, would probably grab your phone and you probably want to run out and go take a photo with them because they're kind of cute and fluffy and fun, Right? Now, imagine the exact same scenario, but you wake up now Tuesday, let's say, and you get an alert on your phone that says a pack of hungry, roaming lions were now roaming your neighborhood. You know what you wouldn't do in case you wanted a death wish? Try to go take a photo with one, right? Because a lion is an impressive animal, right? They're quick, they're powerful, they're strong. They have a great bite force. They're athletic. They're all of these things, right? They're an endangerous animal, but a sheep, sheep are the laughing stock of the animal kingdom. In fact, there's no other animal that needs a human being by their side, a shepherd, 365 days out of the year, 24-7, for everything, to show them where food and water is, to protect them, to guide them, to do all of it, to show them where shelter is, all of it, right? Now, do you get what Jesus is trying to tell you and I about the human condition, trying to tell us about ourselves? If you're not offended by this, you're not listening closely enough, right? You ask a new question, and the question is, well, how did the sheep get lost in the story? And the truth is, we aren't told in the book of Luke, but rather, in the book of Matthew chapter 18, we are told says this, if a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? See, the, sh- the sheep is not lost because of the inattentive of the shepherd, because the shepherd is a bad shepherd. Rather, the sheep is lost because they, he or she, has wandered away from the flock that they were originally part of. It is, it's their own fault that they are lost. Look, I, I give this analogy often. I have worked here for over a decade. I've stood on this stage and given, I tried to calculate this the other day, on this stage alone, maybe two to 3,000 services I've had in, from junior high, high school to young adults. I've had, I'm going to find a unique number, but maybe 10 to 15,000 people that have come through those doors, this roll up there, whatever it is. Do you know how many people, do you know what percentage of people wander away? 99.8% of people. That may be the case of some of you here. You've wandered away. There was a time where you were plugged in. You remember what it was like being in a life group, being shepherded, and then life got busy or, or something was alluring and, and, and pulled you away. The key that we're going to learn here is that life is best done when you're connected to your shepherd. I remember seasons in my life in which like, I would make church a priority and not make it a priority, make church a priority my, you know, before I became a pastor and all that. By the way, you can do that as a pastor too. Um... Life is better when you're connected to the shepherd. Life is better when you're connected to your creator. So another thing about sheep (laughs) that I think is so fascinating, indicative of the human condition, is that sheep are the only animals in the animal kingdom that never look upward. In fact, they can't even look up. Their necks don't even allow them to look up, like towards the sky. So they never look up just what's right in front of them and where they are headed. And that causes them to wander off. I mean, do you know how much better their lives could be if they just looked up more often? 
like to gain, okay, the, shepherd, the shepherd's there, the flock's there, cool, I'm just going to eat this patch of grass here, whatever it is, right? Do you know how much safer they would be? Let me ask the question a different way. Do you know how much better your life could be or my life could be if we just looked up and towards God more often? I've wandered off. I haven't been in the church in how long? When was the last time I carved out some time to be alone with God? When was the last time I fasted? When was the last time I just sat with God and worshiped? At church or not at church, in a car or whatever it may be. When was the last time I made him a priority in my life? I'm real good at making other things priorities in my life. School, job, relationships. But often the very first thing that falls off my where I am to the shepherd, do you know how much better your life could be if you looked up to see the proximity of where you are towards the good shepherd? See, it's a perfect illustration for us. Because in our natural state, the Bible tells us that we are born lost, never looking up to where the shepherd is. In fact, the Bible says it's more worse than that. It says that we are dead and that we are born alienated from God, that we almost can't even know where he is in our lives. In the book of Isaiah, it says, we are all like sheep have gone astray. We have each turned to his own way. I want you to think back just for a moment. If you grew up in church, remember the story in Genesis chapter 3, 1, 2, and 3. That, uh, go back to the garden with me, and you'll find that the first question that God ever asked mankind was what? In the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, it's this. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, this is right after they slipped up, where are you? Pause. God is all-knowing. Why would God ask a question that God knows the answer to? You're played like, so my, my daughter, she's uh, 21 months. She's in the phase of like hide and seek. But she thinks if she can't see you, she's disappeared. She's materialized, not, not, you know, she's invisible. So she'll just cover her eyes and she thinks she's gone. Like she's plopped out of existence. I don't know what she thinks, but it's hilarious. I'll say, go hide. And she'll like move three feet this way and just, and she thinks she's gone. This is how I picture Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve hiding behind a bush. God's like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I created all of this. Like, what? Like, this is, this is silly, right? So why would God ask a question that God already knows the answer to? Because he wanted Adam to know, and he wanted Adam to answer the question. Because the real answer to the question is, I am now lost, separated from my shepherd. I'm hiding from my, the very God that created and loves me. This was the very first look-up moment in Scripture. Where are you in proximity to your shepherd? See, one of the things that we're trying to do when we share our faith with others is we're trying to get people to look up. Because if all you ever do is look down, life is going to get dark. Life is going to get hopeless, and you're going to inevitably get lost because you're going to go under your own way. See, thousands of years ago, when Jesus first told this story in antiquity, the audience, they would have conjured up a, an interesting image. They would have pictured a sheep that was looking down in a massive pasture, a large field. And as the sheep was walking through its, its field, one of its hoofs maybe fall into an uneven patch in the ground, and it would all inevitably, because they're top-heavy, fall in onto their back. And as it would be stuck onto its back, like I told you, they're not the most athletic animals, they can almost never get back over to their side because the way that the crevice is, they land on their back. This is historically called a cast sheep. And when this happens, they almost, like I said, always fall under their back in between the walls of the crevice or hole, and they cannot move um, and get up by themselves. Even worse, their biology and anatomy doesn't really help them much. Over time, uh, gases build up in the stomach of the, of the little guy, and it inevitably cuts off the circulation to its extremities, to its arms and to its legs. And the image that would have conjured up is this little sheep on its back screaming out because he's fearful. And unless the sheep is found there, and the shepherd can grab him and pick him up and turn him back over and put him back on his way, the truth is he'll die there. He cannot get himself out of the situation that he's placed him in. Man, maybe you're here today and you've, you find yourself in a similar situation. 
You feel like you've gotten yourself in a rut, a situation, a hole that you can't get yourself out of. Maybe it's a relational one for you. Maybe it's a spiritual one. Maybe it's a financial problem that you can't get yourself out of. My encouragement, and Scripture gives us this, it is to look up and towards God because he is a God that rescues. Find this with me in verse five. It says this, and when he, God, finds it, he, what, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Do you remember what this moment was like for you? I remember what this moment was like for me. I've shared this story before where I, I, I drank way too much vodka over a decade ago, and I'm throwing up in a bush, and I feel like God was knocking on the door of my heart saying, are you, are you ready for the life I have for you? <laughs> where you keep running off on your own way, falling into holes, and I got to save you. And I'll continue to save you, but do you want a better life? Because a life that's connected to your shepherd and creator is a better life. See, this moment symbolizes salvation. The shepherd takes it upon himself to walk the miles, comb the hills, look everywhere, just hoping to find his lost sheep and bring him home. I want, I want to pause. I want you to remember that Jesus said this is an illustrative story of what? Of how God interacts, how God sees, how God loves human beings. If it hasn't been made obvious yet, if we are the sheep, he is the shepherd. So after days of walking and yelling, let's say the sheep's name into the atmosphere of the desert to fall down on the hot soil and sand, he finally finds his sheep. And I want you to notice with me that as soon as he finds his sheep, he doesn't pick it up and say, how dare you? He isn't angry at him. He doesn't beat him or pepper spray him, but puts the heavy sheep on his back and hikes the miles that's required back to safety and back to his family. I want us and I need us to see that our relationship with Jesus Christ is exactly like that. That's exactly what salvation's like. Jesus literally putting us on his back when he carried the weight of the cross all to bring us back home. Scripture teaches us this beautiful reality that Jesus did all this not to pay us back, but to bring us back into a relationship with himself. And you're, if you're like me, there are times, right, where you've you felt like you're lost in the crowd. You've asked God, God, do you really... Do you really care about me, or am I just a number amongst the many here? What this story communicates and shows us is what I hope you understand is that you have value to God the Father, that he leaves the 99 to go and search for the one, that he is restless in his pursuit until you come home. And so I guess the question is, right, what, what do we learn about God from this parable? That's another sermon. <laughs> I'll give you a few. Number one, he's personal. Two, he's attentive. Number three, he notices, and, three, and four, because he, he pursues because he loves you. A while back, I was on a road trip up north, and I was listening to a Jewish commentator talk to a Christian um, about, about Jesus. And uh, he told the Christian, the Jewish commentator, that Jesus brought no new revelation from God or about God. And the Christian told him an answer I wasn't super hyped on, but although it was accurate, he said that Jesus, all Jesus did was he highlighted certain motifs, themes in the Old Testament, so that we can understand them better in the New Testament. But what I wish that the Christian took the Jewish guy to was this story right here, because the idea of a God who searches after sinners is a revolutionary concept. A God who is perfectly awesome, moral, and just, who longs for sinners of the revolutionary idea. And no other religious ideological worldview has a God that is awesome, complete, perfect, that loves people who are nothing like him. How did Romans in the book of Paul, Paul how did he say it in the book of Romans? He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our filth, still running away, still in that hole, God loved you, pursued you, came after you. Go with me to verse 6 and 7 to see this. And he called his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Question. If this story communicates the heart of God and we're supposed to be just like him, do you love the lost like he loves the lost? I'll say it this way. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that people who will never read the gospel, ever, will read your life. So what are they learning about the God that you say you worship by looking at your life? Does it, does it appear that you even care for these lost people? God cares for them because God knows what awaits them. Number two is the commissioning by God. When's the last time? When's the last time you or I or we demonstrated that we care about what God cares about? As churches age, and even as Christians age, we become more focused on our comfort than our calling. For those of you guys that are maybe more mature in faith, you have a, you've been a Christian for five, six, seven years, remember how passionate you were about telling people about Jesus? Like when you first like came to him? But if you're kind of like been a Christian for a handful of years now, you kind of get in this like sycophantic echo chamber where you're just around people just like you and you forget how dark the world really is. One of the reasons that I still have a Facebook and Instagram, which I go on like once or twice a year, is just a reminder of how dark the world is. Weirdly enough, continues to impassion me to do what I do, to realize that there is a God that changes things. There's a God of light in the darkness. As I see the shorts on uh, Instagram or or, or Facebook or or those little 30-second clips, of it's just unbelievable what people are getting themselves into sexually and a plethora of other things. It's just like, your creator has a better roadmap for your life. And it, we are all like sheep who have gone astray because we followed each his own way. So I said, you know, as we age as followers of Jesus, we become more focused on comfort than our calling. And we, the people in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, need to be more focused on your calling. People who don't know Jesus, the truth is, the church is the only organization that doesn't exist for its members. It doesn't exist for you. Weird. And the truth is, each one of you guys are ministers. You may not be the guy that stands on a stage, but you're a minister. Why? Because you have a ministry. Every member of God's family is a minister because you have a ministry. You have spheres of influence that are people around you that are lost, people that don't know who Jesus is, right? Right? So okay, how do we, how do we accomplish, like, accomplish this monumental task, right? And the answer is one person at a time. The truth is, we're all not going to change the entire world, but you can change someone's world. Because each one of us has somebody immediately. If I say, identify someone quickly in your mind, a friend, family member, neighbor, coworker, whatever it is, that does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's somebody that comes into your mind, right? Could it be that right now that's the person God's placing on your heart to reach out during this season? as we head into maybe the most important season, Christmas. You know, when Scripture talks about the lost, it uses words like deaf, it uses words like blind. It even uses words like dead. Now you think about it, if you're dead, you're probably blind and deaf, but it works. You know, until, until we understand this reality that they are spiritually dead, we're going to burden ourselves with inaction because it feels like an impossible tax. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, for you were dead in your sin and trespasses. I mean, do you understand what the word dead means? Imagine that um, I told you to go to the cemetery this week, and your job was just to go to one tombstone, and it was to get one dead person, just one dead person, and give them life. What would you do? More importantly, who would you bring to accomplish this monumental task? Would you bring a philosopher or a teacher to answer life's largest questions? Would you bring a pastor, one of your favorite pastors, to give you the best sermon that they could possibly give? Would you bring a worship leader to give their very best song? No, of course not. That'd be silly. You would get on your hands and your knees and ask God to do something only God can do, make dead things live, bring life to something that's decaying. The point is, you cannot do this without Christ. Saving people from hell is nothing but 
short of a miracle. And last time I checked, you and I aren't miracle workers. He is. So we must talk to God about whoever this one person is. I'll say it this way. We must talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. We must talk to God about people, that he does something in their hearts before we talk to people about God. So invite your God into the one person that you're gonna persistently start praying for and ask that God does what only he can do. Make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. You know, something amazing happens when you start praying for these people. Begin to love the very people that you're praying for and God does something incredible. He uses your heart and their heart and develops a bridge to walk from your heart into their heart. So as we end today, I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. And I just have two quick things for you. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus in here and you would say you have a good relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you to invite someone to either Friendsgiving next week. Literally, it's like the perfect service to invite a friend. There's tons of food. We do a short Devo, some fun worship songs, and it's just food and fun. Invite them to the Christmas services that we have or come to young adults or whatever it may be. But every day, I want to challenge you to get on your hands and knee and ask God to, God to do only something he can do. And we said earlier, turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. What I'm asking you to do today is I want you to reach up before you reach out. Reach up towards God for whoever this person is that God would soften and change their heart before you actually reach out. This month, uh, nine years ago now, um, our senior pastor, uh, my pastor, he gave a, a sermon that was similar in the sense that it was encouraging us to invite friends and family members who were lost uh, to come to the Christmas services. And so I took it to heart, and my dad was an atheist. And so I, I wanted so badly for my dad to sit next to me in church, and my dad hadn't stepped foot within a church in over 47 years. And so I started to develop a plan. How am I going to get my dad to come to church? And so I finally asked him, and I said, Dad, I'll, I'll, I'll clean up the dog poop. I'll wash your car. I'll be nice to this, my sister. I'll, I'll do whatever it is, but could you just come to service with me? And to my surprise, after fasting and praying, he, he said yes. And that Christmas service, he sat next to me, and it was his first time in church in 47 years at the age of 65. And as he sat next to me, my dad watched the drama unfold on our main stage, where in the beginning there was this big red door. And the red door symbolized a home and a family, and there was this traveling musician. If you were there, you may have remembered. It was nine years ago now. And the, you could say there was some tension between the traveling musician and the family that was sitting at, inside on a dinner table having, there was a father, there was a mother, and there were some other children there, and they were just enjoying the, each other's presence, being a part of the family. And finally, you can see that the, the traveling musician's like wanting to walk up to the door and knock on the door, but he's like, ah, and he goes back, and finally he gets the courage to knock up on the door, and the father opens the door and does something amazing, just walks through the door frame to his son embraces him, drags him through, grabs him by the hand, sits him down at the table and says, I'm not even going to ask about your past. I don't care about your past. I'm just decided that you decide to knock on the door to allow me to drag you in and bring you home. Little did I know that my dad would pass away two weeks later. And I was so thankful that I heard a sermon like this that encouraged me to reach out to somebody that I loved to invite them to hear the story of the gospel because I thought that was such a beautiful display of the love, of the power. I'm not going to ask about your past. Let me know about your past. I was excited that you decided to knock on the door to let me bring you home. What I want you to do is I want you to seek God before you seize your opportunity this season. The next person I want to talk to today is this. If today, if you find yourself far from God, for whatever reason, I know what, maybe you're running. I know what running looked like in my life, but I don't know what it looks like in your life. I want you to know that he's right there and he's ready to pick yourself up. And the greatest news of the gospel is you don't need to clean yourself up. All you need to do is just turn around because he's right there. 
And the gospel teaches this, this beautiful reality. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed. It doesn't even matter how long you've been away from him. All that matters is he wants to bring you back. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for us. Father, today I'm thankful. You're a God that searches after a sinner like me. You're a God that's loving. You're a God that's merciful. God, you're a God that's kind. You're a God that's complete. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would put it on our hearts, somebody. Somebody, Lord, that you want to reach out, want us to reach out to in the next season, the next week. God, would you burden us with the reality that people who are lost, that heaven is not our natural default, and that you want to pay their debt, you want to, you want to save them for their sin. So, Father, would you burden us? Would you break our heart, God, for what breaks yours? We love you, and in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.